Okay, I am. It's good to be with you. Thank you so much. This is an honor. This is such an honor to be with you. I can't get this down. Oh, okay. It's not made for short people. There we go. Oh man, my husband and I, we started um, coming over to the UK in 2002 um, and we fell in love. We fell in love <laughs> with, with all of you and I know that our paths have crossed with many of you over the years for the pleasure to make kind of repetitive kind of, you know, we just come over all the time. We've brought in our girls over. And uh, this is a real treat, and this is an honor to be able to be asked at this specific moment in your history and in Ireland's history. You can't help but feel the excitement with all of you and, and the anticipation for what God is actually speaking, not only in this few days, but what he's speaking in general to you. So anyways, just want to say thank you. Thank you for your hospitality. That is the one thing that has marked our times over here over and over and over again is the unbelievable generosity and hospitality of you. So thank you very much. It's actually a very welcome treat. It's a gift that you offer to the people that come to visit you, and we definitely do take that away. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, I'm really excited. Um, I like hearing the different perspectives already this morning. Um, it's so thoughtful the way that even the speakers have been lined up because we all have a different message and we all have been praying for this time. And there is things that God has actually spoken to me about for this time for you. Um, and they feel very personal. They feel very personal. I started imagining and thinking about my own story because I find it impossible as a human being to be able to talk about these deeply intimate things without sharing a little bit of my own life and my own story because this room is full of different stories, right? We all have our own individual unique story and we're all bringing it together and somehow they intersect and they collide and somehow we're trying to talk about kind of collective identity in the midst of all these really individual stories. And oftentimes it can feel a little confusing. It can feel like, how do these all measure up? And it's gotta be a God thing that he would bring you and you and you and you and you and all of your, your things, their highs that you've been through and all the crises and lows that you've been through and, and bring them all together to actually make sense of where you are headed. So what I wanna do today in this short little time, and I know that the afternoon is so hard because we're all a little tired and you have hopefully full bellies and warm cups of tea like with you, but hopefully we can stay awake enough and we can be alert enough to actually consider a very personal invitation about what is your identity. We're gonna talk about identity. Identity is something that is formed as little people. I was watching this morning, I was sitting behind the most precious little baby. I don't even know if she's still in the room. The most precious little baby that fell asleep on her daddy and she had her little arms wrapped around his neck, safe and secure, like unbelievably cozy, and she fell asleep. And I pointed to my husband, I'm like, that is the sweetest little thing in the world because You've got, you know, like the example of what I want to talk about here, about the sense of identity that starts to get formed when we're tiny little creatures, you know, even months old. 
It's who we are. It's, it's kind of who we're meant to be. It's what we're designed to give this world. And for me, uh, that started pretty young. I imagine, or excuse me, I, I actually can imagine myself as a little girl because when I see pictures of myself as a little girl, this is what I see. You got it for me? This is what I see. I was not one person, I was two people. I was two people. There was a little girl that looked exactly like me that was born the same time that I was. I was an identical twin girl. Now, I know, it's kind of a little freakish, okay? Like when you look at that picture, it's, I can't even tell which one I am, actually. Seriously, my mom, I don't even know if she can, actually. I mean, we just looked exactly the same. And my mom dressed us the same, and people just called us by each other's names. And I mean, imagine what it would be like to grow up in a life where people were never sure who you were. <laughs> where you just got used to not only answering your own name, but your sister's name. And then you wanted to protect the sense of dignity of the other person that made the mistake. And so you would just take it on to be like, oh, no, 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 don't you feel bad that you made a mistake? Don't you feel bad? So you just kind of would respond to two different names. It happens to this day, but you respond to two different names. You kind of act like you, I mean, we, we to this point, I mean, we'll act like, you know, the other person and, and, and somebody will ask me about my boys, but I don't really have boys. I've got girls and I don't care because I'll just say that my boys are fine and you just do it, right? Because that is just what happens when you are born as an identical twin. I even had a grandma and she, I liked um, to, oh, she wasn't the best grandma, okay? She wasn't the best, she wasn't a nice person, quite honestly. She was the kind of grumpy grandma, and I have a good grandma. But the grumpy grandma, she would, she would look at us and just say, sisters that look alike, sisters that look alike, come here. And no joke, like she couldn't even call us by our names, I don't know, but sisters that look alike, come here, and we'd be like, okay, you know, and we'd come running over, and we'd come sitting with her and talking with her. I realize now, as a 41-year-old woman, the profound effects that that had on me, developmentally, kind of the way that I aged into adolescence, the way I aged into young adulthood. Now, my story is very individual, and hopefully you'll see little pieces that you can identify with, but that had profound effect on me, the thought of that I did not have a lot of significance that I didn't have a lot of identity, that nobody really knew who I was and nobody really cared who specifically God made me to be, had really profound effects. I mean, I, I remember wrestling with it, you know, especially in my late adolescence and kind of teenage years, just really wrestling through because, you know, I think that everybody, whether you're a man or woman, everybody has a deep desire for significance, to be seen, to be known, and we try to figure that out in so many different ways, don't we? I mean, we try to figure that out not only within our own family of origin and the way that we were raised, which, by the way, is very profound. I mean, we, are, we start off as, as little tiny human beings. We start off 
you know, adopting identities, being pushed into identities. We have roles that we take on um, in our family of origins. But then, you know, once we start getting a little bit more independent, you know, we, we, we start to look at, you know, what am I actually good at? And what sports do I love to do? Am I an artist? Like, what are the things that I'm really talented at? And we, and we start to be known by, by that attribute. Now think about your own life. What were you growing up? How did you identify? Were you the oldest? Were you the baby of the family? Were you the one that just got everything that they wanted? Were you the one that could dream for the stars and just made something happen? Were you the one that was known by kind of their athletic like abilities and you could just play whatever you wanted to play? Or were you the one that just got left out of everything? Were you the one that was positive? Were you the one that was a little bit more melancholy? You see, all the, I mean, I could go on and on all day long, but those things matter. It's the way that you actually see yourself. It's the way that you perceive that other people see you. Now, as we think about identity, as we start to form identity, what's so interesting in the way that we form as actually human beings is that that is that is actually spoken to you, and it's in your mind, the way that you actually think about yourself, it's very repetitive. It happens over and over and over again. So for example, if you're looking and you kind of see yourself in a certain way, you see yourself as a procrastinator. Anybody procrastinate in here? Okay, so we have a few procrastinators. You start to see yourself. It, that usually comes because somebody has either pointed that out in you, made observations about your own life, or you felt the effects actually of procrastinating, right? Of putting things off. You start to feel the effects of it and you start to think, okay, this isn't like the best way to live, but this is kind of who I am. This is what my personality, my temperament, I mean, this is just kind of what has happened. That starts to deeply embed itself, not only in your cognitive kind of resources, but it deeply embeds itself in the way that you actually feel about yourself, right? I mean, there's no way that it can't. So when we talk about identity, you know, we would love to, I mean, I would love to act like it's a very positive thing. You know, that all of us have very positive, very glorious, very, very uplifting kind of identities that we all walk into a room like this and we feel confident. We feel like we are successful in life. We feel that everybody loves us and we love ourselves. But, but I know that, that when I talk about identity, this can be a deeply painful place, a place of deep, deep insecurity to where the ways that you have seen yourself, the ways that maybe you try not to see yourself, the ways that other people have observed you or given you chances or not given you chances in this life, that that actually can be deeply, deeply painful. Now, as a formation pastor, and, and honestly, I don't even really know what that means. I think that we all are formation people. <laughs> you know, I just for some reason have that title, but, but, but basically I'm just really interested in the spiritual journey. So in our churches, providing consistent space for people to be able to pause and reflect is actually becoming one of the most passionate things in my life. It really is. I mean, we live in cultures that press you to the very edges of your margin, of your time, of your resource. The last thing that we give ourselves is the gift of reflection, the gift of time, 
the gift of space, the gift of silence and solitude, because quite honestly, I mean, what I've observed is that when we give ourselves that gift, it doesn't feel like a gift, first of all. It does not feel like a gift. It feels like an inconvenience. It's very unproductive at first. It doesn't feel very productive. And the reason why it doesn't feel like very much of a gift is because when we sit and we provide that space for ourselves and we decide, okay, God, I need to be by myself. I need to be a little bit more reflective. I need to see kind of why I'm acting the way that I'm acting. I want to actually look at things as such as identity. The sense of anxiety that starts to rise up, anxiety, fear, panic. I don't really like what's really happening. I, I, I like to perform and I don't like this, uh, this, this space of actually just sitting and not performing. I like to be active and this feels very passive. I like to feel like I'm winning and this does not feel like I'm winning. Do you, I mean, have you ever had this experience before? I mean, this is usually, in my experience, this is usually why people avoid these spaces of reflection. Because what starts to bubble up to the surface, at least at first, are things that are a little bit more unattractive to be able to look at. Now, is that all that's there? No, I would, I would make this strong case that if you can sit and wait, if you can sit and be patient, that the things that come up to the surface that completely scare us at first, that they do go away, that when we have the courage to be able to sit in a moment, but we have the Lord look at us and speak to us and start to clear some of the debris and some of the clutter out of our own lives, the sweet things start to happen. Like sweet things, the most beautiful of things. It's the whispers of the Lord when he starts to look at you and go, you are so much more than what you give yourself credit for. You are so much more than who walks in on a Sunday morning. You are so much more than your intellect than your heart, than your compassion. You're so much more than the amount of people that fill your rooms. You are so much more than that. But, you see what I'm talking about right there, it takes a lot of patience. It's a spiritual practice. You actually have to sit in that moment. You have to hold on to the seat. <laughs> Oftentimes you have to force yourself, okay, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe half a day. Maybe I will dare to do a retreat dare to get away, to sit and wait to see what the Lord actually wants to speak. Now, I have found in my own life, in this life of a girl that has found a life message in speaking about identity to people because of her own story about being an identical twin and not having a lot of people do that for me, I have found that identity is something that we must go back to over and over and over again. We must in this spiritual journey, we must have regular moments of reflection and pondering and sorting through and confession and laying down over and over and over again. And I've also found that in moments of crisis, number one, and in moments of calling, number two, that that's when identity gets ruffled. That's when it starts to shake. It's like the earth ground, or the earthquake starts to shake the ground and people start to have to look at who am I? What am I doing here? What do I have to give to the world? That's when God does the deepest of work. 
in terms of crisis, and then in terms of calling. Now granted, I'm sure that there's lots of other spaces that God does on identity work, but I think especially for this. So with all that said though, with all that said, this is the perfect time to be able to talk about identity for all of you. Because we'll, get, we'll hear later, we're gonna hear later about corporate identity, about what God is actually calling you as a people, what he is calling to you as a future and how you can be a part of it. But for this afternoon, could we actually talk about the personal self-identity work that we all have to do as pastors and leaders? Is that good? Okay. What we're going to do today, um, I would love to look at the story of Moses. It's a story that we've heard a million times. I'm actually not even going to read it. I'm going to paraphrase it for you because we've all read it. It's Exodus 3 and 4. We're going to talk about the calling of Moses. You like that story? The burning bush. Who heard that when you were like tiny? I mean, I remember like sitting in Sunday school, I had this beautiful little book of like pictures and I remember staring at that picture of Moses in the burning bush, staring at it, trying to imagine what would it be like if God chose me to talk to you in that way, in that incredibly miraculous, amazing way? What would that be like? Like, how would I react? Because what we can tell up to this moment is that Moses is in complete crisis up to this point. Complete crisis. He is on the run. I mean, how many people in the scriptures do we see that God speaks to you in the midst of being on the run, running away from God, running away from their mistakes, running away from consequences? They're scared. They're fearful. They're trying to hide. And that's exactly what Moses is doing. He's doing that. And he's doing it in a really, you know, like, like really interesting way. I mean, he's run from Pharaoh. He's run from the courts. He's run from his life of privilege. He's run from this really interesting story of being saved. He's run from his mistakes of having a justice heart that got out of control. And he ends up killing somebody, committing, committing the act of murder. And he is running away because he is caught and he is going to be held to account. So he runs away and he lives in the desert and he is a shepherd and he is lonely and he has nothing to lean on. He has no identity left. And so he's in this really interesting moment like where he is trying to figure it out and he's trying to, to figure out basically like what, what's his life supposed to look like? What is he being called to next? Now, I, 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 will guess to, I will guess when I actually think about Moses in the desert, shepherding, meeting his wife, like just trying to figure out this new life, I would guess that there's a great sense of loneliness, a great sense of disorientation. And I like that word disorientation because I don't feel like we use it enough that in the spiritual journey, the disorientation is not a bad thing. There are some of you here right now that have walked into this space and you are in great spaces, great stages of disorientation, where your faith that you adopted and that you've had and that you've clung to and that you have, you know, it's been very close to who you are, your faith, the way that you see God, it is being shaken to the core. Something has happened Maybe something that has happened to you or to people that you love, people that are around you. You are in great space of disorientation. It means you can't see straight. What you have thought was firm is not firm anymore. 
And let me just say, let me just say to you, God can do incredible things when you are disoriented. Incredible things. The things that you cling to and that you think that are really secure. The things that you hold on to and you're like, yes, this is who I am. This is what I know. That assurity, when that is lost, God can get in there and do miracles. He really can. Have you ever seen that in your own life? Have you ever seen that? I remember when I was in my mid-20s, um, my husband and I, we had been married for a while, and um, because we got married really young, we just found each other really young, and so we had been married for a while, and we had just had that conversation about having kids and, and kind of entering into that next stage, right? It's so interesting because, I mean, you know, uh, those of you that are married, you know that, like, once you get engaged, people are trying to push you into that next stage, right? You know, like, when are you going to get married? You know, and you go into being married, and then once you're married, people are like, when are you going to have babies? You know, then when's the next one? And so you're always being kind of pushed into that next stage, right? So it takes a lot of thought and intentionality to be like, okay, are we satisfied with the stage that we're in? And are we not going to let people kind of push us in to a stage before we're ready. And so we had that conversation. It was our five-year anniversary. We were actually over in Scotland and we were sitting in a little cafe and we were talking about the past five years. And then we start talking about the next five years. We start talking about, okay, let's just wait like a little bit longer to have kids and we're not ready. We're not grown up enough. And, you know, we just started this church plant and we had enough going on, enough drama, craziness, that sort of thing. And before you know it, I mean, we, we get back home. We got pregnant on that trip. I don't, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. I kind of act like I don't know how that happened, but yeah, whatever. So we got pregnant on the trip. It was all the wine. That's usually what I tell people, okay? It was all the wine. We had a lot of wine over there in England and Scotland. So anyways, lots of stuff going on. So anyways, we come back. I am sick, 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 right? What's interesting is that my reaction, finding out that we were pregnant, oh my goodness, my reaction, I burst into tears. Burst into tears. I mean, boohooing, sobbing. I mean, it was just like the end of the world, right? Not the, not the moment that you imagine, not the moment that you want to tell your children, right? Growing up, like, oh yeah, when I found out I was pregnant with you, I burst into tears because I was so sad. So sad, imagining my whole life was going to change and all the things I was going to give up and, and the way that, that my energy was going to be divided. And we were trying to do ministry and we had moved across the states to do this church plant. And all of a sudden, I've got this other thing on my plate that feels incredibly overwhelming. And I don't know how God is actually going to give me the resources to be able to do it. It was one of the most disorienting times in my faith journey because I didn't understand what God was doing. I really didn't. I had a friend one time tell me, um, it, it actually makes sense when I look back, she said, her name is Fran, and she said, listen, it's in these moments of disorientation, you can imagine yourself driving a car, if you can just put it in neutral, do not put it in reverse. You will not go forward, first of all. That's like without, you will not go forward and disorientate. If you try to go forward, you will blow up your life. Just sit there in neutral and let God do his thing. Let him carve out deep places inside of your heart. Let him heal you in the deepest of places. Let him restore and redeem where you have forgotten that he can even do that. You just park it into neutral because if you put it into reverse and you start making big decisions, big decisions about your life and about faith and about God, you will pay for that and you will work through that for the rest of your life. 
So it's in those moments of disorientation, which we see Moses in right here, that he is there. He's not moving forward. He's not moving back. He is in neutral and he is waiting. And there is one day that changes his entire life. It's a day that there's a bush that decides to burn without reason, and we have no idea how that even happened because it was so incredibly miraculous. And I love the fact that, that, that as he's staring at this bush, which we all have read in the scriptures, as he's staring at this bush, like, what is happening? That God actually has to say, Moses, come here. Moses, come here. And he, you can imagine him kind of stumbling and like wandering and his mind is trying to grasp, like, what am I actually seeing? And then he has, he has a phrase in the scriptures that he says that oftentimes I see the most kind of open people in the scriptures say, they just say, here I am. Here I am. It's like Samuel as a little boy, like Eli just saying, just say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. You see it with David. You see it with Elijah. I mean, you just see it throughout the scriptures. They just go, here I am, because oftentimes that's all that you need to say. Here I am. I'm open. <laughs> I'm open, Lord. Now, did he know what was coming? Of course he didn't know what was coming. But I love the posture of his heart. And I love the fact that that's all that he had to do. He had just had to take off his shoes, enter into the presence of God, and just say, God, do what you do. Do what you may. Reveal yourself in new ways. And this is where the most interesting parts start to happen. Because this is what is known as the calling of Moses. Where God calls him to things that are so outside of his imagination, that are so big and so extraordinary, and so never been done before. And what you see in that moment is not necessarily a man that goes, yes, I am all for it. I am ready to go. I am the right person. You have chosen well. I mean, you do not see a man that does that, right? He stays in the moment because he's just, here I am. He stays in the moment and he lets all the insecurities surface. Do you ever have moments like that? <laughs> Where you just allow yourself to be insecure just for a moment? And you just allow yourself. It's the moments that I was talking about earlier when we're in those moments of sacred space where we can just go, okay, can God handle the fear and the insecurity that I feel right now is he is calling me to something bigger. Is he is putting his finger on this really tender part of my identity and he's saying, I need this to shift and change. For the sake of your freedom, I need this to shift and change. Have we ever had that moment before? where we sit there and we go, okay, I will vocalize and let these insecurities come up to the surface, trusting that God will meet me in my insecurity and they will not swallow me. Because that's really what Moses does right here. And so let's just look at them for a moment. Let's just look at these. Because I think that these are really interesting. And I think that for those of us that are really taking our identity, our sense of calling, like how do we belong in this room? Like where is our future? And like what does God want, actually wanna do with it? I think that we're gonna find one of, one of these, these kind of excuses, one, one of these kind of insecurities, we're gonna find it in our own story. I think we will. And I think we're gonna have some really beautiful moments to repent, to be able to acknowledge that this is what the Lord is doing right now, this is what he's speaking. I think the Lord will speak. So let's just look at the first one. You've got Moses. 
He's being called. God's actually looking at him going, Moses, I have something for you. I'm going to do something that nobody's ever done before. I'm going to release the Israelites, the Hebrew people, into their own land. I'm going to get them out of Pharaoh's grip. And I'm going to use you. And you are my person. I'm going to use you. And what is the first thing that he says? We look at chapter 311. You guys can look this up later. Again, I'm paraphrasing this all for you. His first response when God starts to reveal calling to him, starts to tell him, this is what I've designed your whole life to be. His first response is, who am I? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? I can imagine that Moses' first thought as he examined his life in that moment and thought, who am I? to be chosen to be able to do something like this? Who am I to be able to lead at such a significant level? You don't understand what I have done in my life. You do not understand the things that I have done. You don't understand I have the ways I have given up my integrity. You don't understand what a poor leader I was, how I can't control my anger, my temper, my emotions. You don't, under, you don't even understand my, the upbringing of my birth and how I didn't have consistent family and how I might have struggled with if I was loved and accepted and that sort of thing. Who am I? How many times have you ever thought that? Because I mean, that's like a consistent thought in my life. Like, who am I? Who am I? I'm like a girl that has like struggled her whole life trying to figure out like who she is. I'm like a girl that like, you know, like I can point to several moments of like really, um, you know, sad moments in her life where she had to like grieve over her tragic family. Who am I that, you know, and you can just start to, to weave this, 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 this story of your life where it's highlighted by tragedy and crisis and your mistakes and your sin and the sins that were done against you. I know that for me, one of the most beautiful things that I can do when I sit by myself with God is to ask God to get my eyes off of myself. We have such a tendency as humans, as broken people, to just become incredibly navel-gazing human beings where we cannot even remotely imagine, our imaginations are so shut down for how God can use us, how he can redeem us, how he can take the, the, the things that we have done, the leadership decisions that we have incredibly screwed up, the people that we have not served, that we've probably hurt more than served, the ways that we have preached heresy instead of truth, the way that we have screwed up our families and our kids are a mess, the ways that we look at our marriages and we look and say, there's gotta be so much more, but I don't know how to get there. There's gotta be ways that the Lord can take our eyes off of ourself and that gut insecurity, like who am I to be a part of this? And have it so that we can meet him and we can look him gaze to gaze. I remember, I just recently have remembered this, that on my wedding day, 
It was so young and so overwhelmed, and there's all these people looking at me, and I was not the type of person that would be like, look at me. Like, I just, I mean, it was just so overwhelming, and I get there, and I get down the aisle, and I'm standing in front of my husband, and I'm just, I mean, we're, we're staring at each other, or we're, we're standing in front of each other, and all I could do is just look down. I mean, I'm just looking down. I'm like basically looking at like his belly button or, you know, his shoes. Like, I'm just looking down like the whole time, and our pastor's like trying to do this ceremony, and all I can do is like look down. I was so overwhelmed because I was just like, everybody's looking, you know, whatever. I just was so overwhelmed, right? And all of a sudden, I remember my husband whispering to me. And he's like, look up, Danielle. Look up, look up. Look at me. Look at me. And it's like, at first, it's like jolted me out of like whatever was going on. And I, and I look at him. And when I looked him in the eyes and I saw how much love that he had in that moment, now see, that is a beautiful moment, but it, it doesn't even compare to what the God does. It doesn't compare to the moments where we look in God's eyes and we look in his face and he looks at us and say, I have your life. I have your life. I can redeem things that you have given up on. I have redeemed things. I have redeemed things. I will make new what you think has been lost. God does not waste your pain. When I was younger, there, there was a book that we would read in English, and I don't even know if we read it still in the States, but it was something that was just part of our curriculum called The Scarlet Letter. Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he wrote this book about puritanical kind of East Coast and he wrote this book and it revolved around the themes of like sin and repentance and that sort of thing. It was a really interesting book. But the opening scene, have you guys ever heard of this book? Yeah, some of you. But the opening scene, and this has been such a poignant scene. I've remembered this over the years. I think it has an incredible spiritual kind of application to it. But the opening scene is a woman that's standing on the blocks and she's standing in front of her entire town. And she's being forced to put a, a, a sew something onto the front of her, her dress. She's been caught in adultery. Her name is Hester Prynne, and she's been caught in adultery. Now, the book does not deal actually with the man that was caught in adultery until much later on in the book, which is really interesting. But they caught the woman, she had a baby, and they wanted to mark her for the rest of her life in this society. And the way that the society thought best to be able to do it was not just to ostracize her from the community, but to put a public red letter that was on the front of her dress. And so the whole book deals, it's such a fascinating book because the whole book deals with her, you know, going into town and being with people and, and always having the scarlet letter on the front, A for adultery. Now the book goes on and on. It talks about kind of like what happens in her life, but the part that has been so mesmerizing for me in that story is that it was such a picture of what happens to us along this journey that we take on these scarlet letters, that we take on these things that become such a part of our identity and kind of like, this is who we are and this is just what's happened to us. And they mark us, they shape us, they form us. It makes it so that, that, that we feel that nobody can even look at us unless they look through what we have been a part of and what we have allowed to happen to us. And this is just the way that I see myself. Now, when I say it like this, it's like, how could anybody allow that to happen? You know, like, I mean, really? Do people really allow that to happen? Moses did. 
Moses did, because this was the first thing that he said to God. It's like he had to remind him of all the mistakes. When we sit with Jesus, if one of the most consistent things that we do is ask for God to show us mercy, to keep showing us what it's like to experience grace and forgiveness, then that's a sweet life with Jesus. That is a sweet life with Jesus. Now, does that, does that mean that our story is not our story? Of course not. But it means that we don't wear the scarlet letter. It means that we don't put on it every day. It means that that's not the first lens that we view the world and that we think the world views us. Does that make sense? It's just a really interesting picture. It's just a book that has always stayed with me. Let's look and see what other things that Moses has done. I would say the next thing that he does um, is he points out his inadequacies. It's the, it's the scripture that everybody that's ever like, thought anything inadequate about themselves that we all love because Moses, if the leader of the Hebrew people can actually say like, I can't speak, I'm not very articulate, I don't have the words, I don't know how to do this. We all love that because we're like, we all have felt that way to some extent, right? Because we're so aware of the ways that we have been built and the things and the gaps that we have and the things that we don't, that we need that we don't have, we're so aware that, oh, I'm an extrovert or I'm an introvert or I'm socially awkward or I run out of patience with people. You see, that's different from the first thing that I talked about. The first thing is basically like the decisions that have shaped your life. This is more innate, kind of like, who am I? How have I been created to be? It says in 410, it says, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I've never known how to do this. Nobody's ever taught me. I'm not very smart. I don't work very well with people. I'm not very organized. We all have lists and lists and lists and lists of things that we are aware of about ourselves. Again, it shapes the way that we see ourselves. What's beautiful is God's response. What's beautiful, it says, who gave this man his mouth? Who gave it to him? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? You are forgetting, it is I, says the Lord. Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you. I am completely in control, God said. I made you the way that I've made you. I've made you that way. It's been very intentional. I love this because you can see this even later on in the scriptures. Paul says this. Like, listen, like, I know that I've been made in a way. Like, he says it, first of all, actually with the first point when he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. He was very well aware of his story. The second part, he actually says, listen, I have a thorn in my side. I know that there's something about my life that doesn't work. We can all guess maybe what that was, but there's something that I am born with that I feel inadequate. I feel like I'm not able to fully carry out my calling, my work, do the best of my abilities. You see, we all have moments like this, right? Where again, our eyes are drawn to this and you can see Moses too, he's horribly inadequate. I mean, who was he to actually lead the, the nation of, of Israel? Who was he? He's hiding in the desert, he's a shepherd, he's running from his sin. Who is he? Was his character like fully formed and functional and beautiful? No, of course it wasn't. Was he fully trained so that he could actually lead a nation of thousands of people? No, of course he wasn't. Was he stable? Was he, was he emotionally kind of like healthy? Was he, you know, I mean, you can just go on and on and on. No, of course he wasn't. But that wasn't the point, was it? 
It wasn't the point because God says so clearly, I need who you are. I need you in everything that you bring. I need you in your strengths and I need you in your weaknesses. And what's so interesting is that God actually gets a little frustrated with him. Gets a little frustrated because Moses won't let this go. Moses will not let this go and just say, but still, you are calling me to something that I don't know that I can do. I don't know that I can do. And it's almost like God actually in the passage just says, okay, fine, Moses. You don't think that you can do this. I'm going to finally give you some help because you won't believe that I have created you for this moment. Okay, fine. I will give you help. I will give you your brother, Aaron, and he will help you and he'll translate and he'll te- I'll teach both of you like how to do this. Okay, fine, but that wasn't his first intention, was it? His first intention would be that Moses could go, yes, I am so dependent on you. I will be so dependent. Do you ever wonder that that's the reason that God has made you the way that he's made you? That he's made you with these flaws. He's made, I mean, like I, after like eight o'clock, I die. Jay always says that I'm like a pumpkin. Like I turn into a pumpkin. Like I die. I wish that I was the party animal. I wish that I was social. I wish that I was like, you know, like revved up. I always feel jealous of those people. I am tired actually of living my life jealous of other people. I really am. I really am. I've just finally gotten to the point. I wish that I would have gotten to this point 20 years ago. I just think I was a little delayed. (laughs) (laughs) identical twin, remember? I just was a little delayed. Now I'm looking at myself going, okay, I spent most of my life trying to figure out who I was, not really liking who I was, kind of being like, okay, I always see the gaps, I always see the flaws. Now I'm getting to the point where I'm like, I really like who I am, and I actually just want to live that way. I don't want to compare anymore. I don't want to like walk into a room and like be so consumed with insecurity of like, but they are more, they, you know, Debbie, she can talk, she can talk so fast. And the words just come out so beautiful. I don't know what it is, right? I don't talk that fast and my words aren't as beautiful. I wish that I was more prophetic. I wish that I was more prayer. I wish that I, I'm tired of living in the I wish kind of stage. I really am. I think that as the people of God, as pastors, as ministry leaders, if this is the one place that we can settle in and we can just go, I bring what I bring. I bring what I bring. And what I bring is incredibly beautiful. And all the gaps, I'm not even gonna pretend like they're not there. I'm just gonna say, like, it's all about God. He's gonna help me. He'll help me keep maturing. He's gonna help me keep healing. But I am who I am. My story, the way that I was made, he has made me in his image. I mean, can you imagine a group of people, a group of pastors that got together. Now, I'm not saying that you guys aren't these people, okay? But a group of pastors that got together, that walked into the room, that just felt okay with actually telling how things were. Like, it's been pretty crappy. Like, I don't want to go to work some days. Or I had this pastoral situation that spun me so badly, I kind of got a little depressed. Or I don't think that I have the leadership to be able to carry off what God is asking me to be able to do. I don't know if I hear God and I'm supposed to be leading a church. I'm in the middle of crisis and my faith has been so shaken that I actually don't know if I want to do ministry anymore. I mean, we're talking real things like that. 
like real things that take a lot of guts and courage to be able to say to people because then you have to wait for their reaction. And then if they give you the slightest kind of weird reaction, then you're like, I'm out of there, done. The doors have closed, no more vulnerability. I'm not gonna let them in. But this is really what's going on. And what, happened, what would happen like if we were a group of people that, 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 that just went there? That instead of looking at somebody else in that moment and just patting them on the back and going, you're amazing, you're great, everybody loves you, and we do that Band-Aid thing where we just put Band-Aids like all over people's gaping wounds, where we just looked at them and just said, I will sit here with you. I will sit here, I will be your friend. I will let you get it all out. I will keep directing you towards Jesus. I will not fix you. Because anybody that knows that somebody has tried to fix them or has that feeling of somebody trying to fix them. They don't like it. Do you like it? Do you like it when people try to fix you? No. I don't know, maybe some of you guys do. I don't. I don't. I don't like when people try to fix me. I don't. I do like it when somebody sits there and companions with me. And they companion with me. And again, they, they bring my eyes off of my nasal-gaving self and they point me towards God and they just say, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. In the end, God wins. We're playing it. We're playing along. We're doing the best of the, the best job that we can. God is in control. God is in control. The last thing I wanna say about this, and I just wanna reemphasize this for a moment. The insecurity of the way that we are made, it really does affect the way that you show up into a room. It really does. I've seen this over and over again with people, but it really does affect your ability to be able to, to be present, to be able to interact with people, to be able to hear what God has to say. Um, we're gonna pray about that in a moment because I actually do think that God would actually speak to them. It feels, it feels like actually one of the biggest, in my opinion, one of the biggest kind of tricks of the enemy to make it so that we're not present for what God is actually calling us to do. It's the, it's the voice of insecurity. It steals joy out of our life. It steals pleasure. It steals, it steals um, it just our ability to be able to connect with other people. I believe, I believe that if we give space to God, he can speak into that. He can speak into it in such a deep and profound way. So let's look at the last kind of excuse that Moses gives. So we have, you don't even know who I am, and then you don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm so inadequate. And the very last thing he talks about is his relationship with God. He says in 3.3, suppose they ask me, like when, when I start to tell people, like, I'm supposed to do this. God is calling me to be able to do this. I'm supposed to do this. And suppose they ask me, this is Moses talking, what is his name? His is in God. What is his name? Then what should I tell them? And then he goes on to say, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord didn't appear to you? So he's basically saying, like, I think I'm hearing from you right now. You're standing here in a burning bush. I think you're talking to me. But if, what if nobody actually believes that I am called to do the things that I'm called to do? That you're telling me that I'm meant to do. That you're telling me that you're going to give me help for, that I'm built for, that I'm made for this moment. And what if nobody believes me? I mean, this is kind of internal calling versus external calling, right? Like where, where there is a sense of fear, like what if? Because you can see that he's not okay with God. Like as far as we know, he hasn't had that much of a personal relationship with God up to this point. I mean, he, was, he knew about God. He knew it cognitively. I mean, in his mind, he knew God. But the experiential part of God, 
the experiential part, like where you know God, that's what's being worked out here. Where he's going, no, I know that God spoke to me. I know that he loves me. I know that he has something for me. This is the most beautiful part of the vineyard. In my opinion, this is one of the most beautiful parts of the vineyard is the way that we, we talk so experientially about our relationship with God. It's not just about the books that we read and the podcasts that we listen to and the stimulating conversations that we have. We place such high value on sitting with God and experiencing who we are, like in his presence, letting him shape us and letting us you know, be healed and direct us and that sort of thing. That is a beautiful gift. I've actually had in this past year, I've had a chance to sit with a lot of people from other denominations and other streams and other church backgrounds. I am more than any other time in my life filled with gratitude actually for the vineyard for this. I learned this as a little girl. I remember 12 years old watching people that were my parents' age pray for each other and listen and wait for the signs because that's what God ends up doing to Moses. He ends up saying, I will give you plenty of signs that I am with you, plenty of signs. I will turn your hand lep- like into leprosy. I will, I will take that rod and I will turn it into a... St- I mean, he gives him miraculous signs that he can use. He has not left him alone. He's not just going to like let him hang out to dry, but he's given him miraculous signs. This is what the vineyard is about. It really is. We have the framework and the mindset to be able to understand what's happening here that when we go out, when we go out and we start to step and live into our calling, we start to see our identity shift and change, that if people challenge and come back at us, that we can say, we know because God has spoken and he has given him himself to us. It is our sign. Now, with that said, it's really about nurturing our relationship with God, isn't it? I mean, if Mo- and God can do anything, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but, but Moses was identifying something. He was identifying an insecurity in his intimate relationship with God. So God will give him these signs, but then there's also something that he's articulating in here going, I'm just not sure about my relationship with you. I'm not sure that I can actually talk about the intimate connection I have with other people. I'm not sure because I just don't know. How much of that is in your story? I mean, we're leaders, we're pastors, we're supposed to like just know and feel confident and know that God speaks to us and, and, and be confident of these signs that he has given us. But I mean, really how confident do you feel and that you know your relationship is with God? How secure do you feel? How secure? I'm astounded at how many pastors and ministry leaders, they have no regular rhythm with Jesus. I might be treading on kind of shaky ground here. I mean, this might be really convicting. I am very astounded how many ministry leaders and pastors do not have regular rhythm with Jesus. And we're not talking studying to put together a really awesome sermon on a Sunday. Okay, because that's oftentimes what ends up happening, right, is ministry leaders. I mean, you, 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 your relationship becomes for other people. Your relationship with God, you intake and you think and you pray, but it ends up all being about for other people. 
What a dangerous place to be in. That is a very, very dangerous place to be in. When we lose our soul, we lose our intimate connection with God, we stop hearing him speak just for us, that we stop kind of cultivating a beautiful secret life with God, that it's just between us, it's just between God and me. That's a really dangerous place to be in. And maybe that might be the thing that God's challenging you with today, where it's just like, okay, listen, I'm going to woo you back to who I am. I'm going to remind you of your first love. I'm going to tell you once again that I have things for you that I want to whisper to you and say to you. I want to cement kind of calling. I want to secure up these insecure places. I want to do that for you. So it's an interesting story, isn't it, to look at it this way? Moses, calling kind of all these little insecure pieces that came up, is there something that resonated with you? Is there a place in there that you can look at your own life and you can go, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So I see Moses working out identity right there. Like, who do I want to be? Who am I? Who do I want to be? Am I, am I made to give something to this world? It's the question that we're all asking. Those questions right there, those questions, questions such as, am I loved unconditionally? No matter what has happened in my life, does God unconditionally love me? Am I valued? Am I seen? Am I worth it? Those questions right there get as deep as you can get when you are talking about identity. You see, identity, and I want to end with this, but identity oftentimes can just only scratch the surface. We see it in terms of role. We see it in terms of whatever anybody has kind of given to us. Like, oh, you must be a good speaker or you must be a good pastor. You must be a very compassionate person. True identity, when you can get your eyes off of yourself and you can look into the eyes of the Father, true identity answers these questions. Am I loved unconditionally? When is the last time that you sat before your Father, the Father in heaven, creator of the universe, and you sat there and waited until you believed this. Like you actually waited until you believed it. Remember a couple years ago I sat in front of, I don't know if you guys have ever read Richard Rohr, he's a modern day mystic, and he, he, he came to Denver and he was doing a, um, like a, um, a talk to area pastors. We were part of it. It was really interesting because I've read his work and I thought it was really interesting. And somebody asked him, you know, what's your rhythm with Jesus? What's your rhythm? You know, we all want to know the secret. Like, what do you do? What do you do? And, you know, he seems like a spiritual person and give me the secret. Like, what do you do? And this is all he said. He goes, well, you know, I sit down a couple times a day. I light a candle. Okay. I, yeah. So I light a candle and I just sit there. And somebody goes, well, what do you do when you sit there? I mean, come on, give us a secret. What do you do? And he goes, I just wait until I actually believe that God loves me. I just wait. And some days it's two minutes. Some days I have to sit there for an hour as I work through all the different things that start to come up. The insecurities, the things that I've done, I have to confess. I have to just clear things out until I actually sit there and I go, yes, you love me. Because when we are loved unconditionally, when we are seen, when we are treasured, when we, are val when we know that who we are is completely valued, then I'll tell you what, that's a powerful people. Have you ever been around somebody like this? Have you ever been around somebody like this that actually just sits 
and ask these questions, and they're not afraid to be able to sit there as long as it takes, because they know that what's gonna come out at the end is so precious and so beautiful that they can be a part of something much bigger than who they are. They can be secure and confident that God has called them, that he's gonna use them in a piece of the kingdom. You see, without this right here, we will take on whatever anybody gives us. Somebody looks at you and says, I need you to do this. I want you to do this. I will give you my agenda to be able to do. And when we do not have our identity firmly planted and intact, we do not know that we are loved and cared for and that our best actions don't matter, that it's really about who we are, then we will jump on board with what anybody wants us to do and we are left bitter and we are left angry. We are left disillusioned. We are left disoriented. So that's not a good place to be in, FYI. That is not a good place. As pastors, as leaders, that we feel resentful about what has been handed to us, what if we did the hard work now? We did the hard work in our homes, in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, the hard work before God to sit in this moment and to go, who am I? Who am I in Ireland, in the vineyard, before God, in my family? Who am I? Who am I? Who has God called me to be? Who am I? Answer that question first before anybody tells you what they see. Answer that question first for yourself before God. Anything else is icing on the cake. I promise you, it is icing on the cake. Because if you are insecure and you don't know and somebody tells you what they see, and that is the danger of the prophetic, they tell you what they see, you will take that on without testing it for yourself, without doing the hard work. It's like a caterpillar that comes out of its shell. It has to have a little bit of struggle and work before it actually becomes what it needs to become. Do the hard work yourself. Okay, I think I'm done. Is that good? Okay, there we go. Okay. <laughs> I could end that a lot more eloquently. I think I'm done. I really don't have any more words. I think that is the word of the Lord actually for you guys. I've prayed about this. Um, I felt, and I can't remember if I even said this at the very beginning, I felt um, very specifically that before you start talking about corporate identity, you have to talk about the personal identity. You have to. You have to. Now, granted, it all goes together and somehow it meshes and it runs into each other and it's fluid. But to do the hard work of figuring out who you, who you are first, that's when you actually show up to get on board with mission. That is where mission happens.